Hello there and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Hello there, my name is Des Cahill and today's visitor to the island is a Dublin woman, one of our leading obstetricians and gynaecologists. She served as Master of the National Maternity Hospital from 2012 until 2018. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr Rona Mahoney. And Rona, the location of where your first musical choice comes from Kind of gives you away as a Northside <laughs> Dublin girl. I am. I'm born and bred Northsider. And of course, the big joke when I was appointed master, I was the first female master in yeah. Dublin. And um, but the joke, of course, was I was the first Northside master <laughs> in Dublin. So we used to have a giggle yeah. about that. But absolutely, my first choice comes from the Grove, and of course, it's Stairway to Heaven. And anyone who's out there who went to the Grove will absolutely relate to that. There's a kind of subculture about the Grove that you're going to have to explain for everyone else. Yeah. Jerry Ryan used to often talk about it. Remember oh. back in the day, but I mean, the first thing everyone's going to say is these were the best days of our lives. They really were. So the Grove was quite an alternative disco. It was very cool. Um, all the kind of chart hip hop stuff was not at the Grove. So we had Cecil Nolan, who was our DJ, still alive, and we're still having tributes to him and and a tribute evenings. But he was phenomenal. So our whole education was from Rush to Led Zeppelin, Thin Lizzy. We do two Simple Minds. 10cc Santana but it was such a classical eclectic mix of music and we would never have met that music you know Freebird Leonard Skinyard um, but and it was in Clontarf it was in uh, St Paul's College it started off years ago it's about 50 years old now the Grove but it started off in Belgrove and then I think it must have that's hence the Grove yeah. the Grove yeah. yeah and then it moved up to St Paul's College Rohini so their hall you know for their gym was there but the big benefit was there was also a compound which I think normally was for parking the bikes but it became came later a place for the kissing <laughs> and the talking and the meeting and all the rest and the few fags as well yeah. so Stairway to Heaven of course was um, you know it's a long Very long, long yeah. song you see and this would be played in the slow set so another big memory everybody will have from the Grove was the dreaded slow set when if you were near the door enough and you'd normally be ready for this you'd be out to the compound before there'd be any difficulty but the slow set would invariably be like Eric Clapton Wonderful Tonight Janicine 17 and then Stairway to Heaven would come on and you'd be there going this is really lovely and then the next thing it speeds up yeah so you're sitting there you're standing there opposite your opposite number and then suddenly the music gets really fast and no one knows what to do so life was awkward enough but this was really a challenge but anyway you'd navigate that and if you survived the fast bit probably (laughs) there was uh, a spark there you know and we'll we'll play it in a moment but, but growing up yeah, uh, I time, loved obviously. it was. I grew up in Rohini. Um, we lived on your classic housing estate. Most of our parents seemed to have grown up in Glasnevin. And in my early world, it seemed to me the whole world had played tennis in Glasnevin Tennis Club and had then got married and lived in Rohini. So that was it. <laughs> so all of our parents, I guess, arrived at the same time. So all the families were the same age. So we sort of had a system of parents and children. So there was just loads of parents in Maywood. And then there was the kids. And you'd be out in the road from literally nine or ten in the morning, you'd run around the table for your meals and then back in again whenever you were dragged in, kicking and screaming. So played a lot of tip the can, 
a lot yeah. of tennis, a lot of football. But it was just such fun. Like a big gang of us hanging out together. Yeah. But you always felt very safe. We knew each other. We grew up together. Friends now or my friends like go back to those days but you were never bored like there was always something going on and then after the Grove you'd have to go to Mass in Rohini you know in the back right hand side of the church was where we'd all convene to discuss <laughs> the night before and do the post-mortem see who was with who and what happened you know but uh, there and was always something going on And I read you went to school at a very young age I, Yeah I was a bit of a nightmare I'm still a nightmare uh, so my I was the youngest of three and my older brother and sister were knew everything. You know, they were very clever, knew everything. And I was the youngest trying to survive in this household. I mean, there was obviously multiple. I mean, we get back to that attempts in my life growing up. I'm lucky to be alive. They tried everything, but I survived. But then there was this, I decided that, you know, I'd see them going to school every morning and I'd be left behind. And I never liked being left behind. So I said to my mother, I wanted to go to school and I badgered her and I begged her and I, you know, it was the odd tantrum I'd say and anyway stamped the foot so in the end she said right then you can go to school see how you like it so at the age of three I was packed off down to Holy Faith to Miss Delaney who I remember so clearly to this day and I loved it and all the girls would be down in the back crying because they were in school and I was up at the front going I have all the you know we used to call it Mola the plasticine uh, all the yeah. toys everything to myself so I'd sit up there quite happily and uh and I used to sleep though because I wouldn't go to bed at night see, so I used to sleep during school and eventually Miss Delaney called my mother down and said you know your daughter is sleeping all through class and what time she go to bed at and my mother was there like oh you know so in the end Miss Delaney told me I'd have green eyes if I didn't go to bed on time and she'd see the green eyes so that cured me because I was terrified the green eyes would give me away so <laughs> anyway and were you, you were clearly clever academically were you? Um, I was all right. I loved reading, I suppose. And, and, you know, it's a funny thing, but I remember learning to read and we learned with this phonetic way. So you would like cat would be cut at ta, right. and you'd put together the word. And I loved it was like doing, a, you know, a puzzle and you would just sound out your word and suddenly the word would emerge from the page and railway were our first reading books. But like to this day, I think someone who teaches you to read like to Miss Delaney, I am grateful to her yeah. because once I learned how to read, you know, there's this whole world opens up. It's like that book by McMahon, you know, the story, Windows of Wonder, like you yeah. learn to read and suddenly there is so much for you. You know, the whole world's open to you. So I love reading. It's funny, the impact of a good teacher on, on all of us. Is oh, so amazing. Good. Like we had such a great start. She was just a phenomenal woman. Um, I'll never forget her. She was such a great teacher and so patient and made it so interesting for us, you know. And I think that gave me a real love for school from the outset, you know. Yeah. OK, well, your first musical choice Rona Mahoney, Stairway to Heaven. As you said, it's about 27 minutes long. <laughs> That's the end of the programme, <laughs> effectively. So I don't know, we'll start with the slow bit and see how we get on. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Stairway to Heaven, the choice of today's guest, former master of the National Maternity Hospital, Dr. Rona Mahoney. Now, your, your medical career is far more than just your spell as master of the maternity hospital, mm. but it, obviously it was very significant. But uh, was medicine always your choice? Mm. Yeah, early on, I remember about second year putting up my hand uh, and saying I want to be a surgeon. And the nun kind of said, I don't think so. You know, that's sort of a bit of a pipe dream there. And I remember, again, I hate being told, you know, like all of us, you can't do this. So I was going to be a surgeon from then on. So uh, I did want to study history. I did have a bit of a dilemma. I loved history and I applied to study history in Cambridge in Robinson's College, uh, which is an all-female college. That was the only college they were going to give me. I had not wanted to go to an all-female college at all. So that 
didn't look great. And then I'd send over some essays. And at the time we were studying Irish history. So I sent them over essays like how we could have done better in 1916. Mm. You know what I mean? And maybe, you know, so I don't know. They loved my essays, you know. Yeah. So anyway, it was a very were tricky. You accepted? It was a tricky interview. I was accepted yeah. on the grounds I'd pay a vast amount of money, which I think was a way, yeah. a polite way. So I thought, right, then uh, maybe I'll come back and do the medicine after all. So I started medicine UCD. It's just been quite an incredible time I mean you just learn so much and you're so exposed to life and it's a challenging mm. career like I won't say it's easy and um, there's a lot of ups and downs but at the same time it's never boring let's get to the maternity hospital yeah, just in yeah. the, a the, the notion that it's all it's all about women and children and there had never been a woman master uh, in itself I mean it says a lot about us that we were so slow for that to happen mm. uh, were you conscious of that not particularly. Not particularly. Yeah, I didn't see gender so much in terms of myself, I suppose. I think what I saw was that women's health was behind the curve. I saw, if you like, that the building, the infrastructure was very poor. You look at the investment into women and children's health. And I also, I think, saw that so many women were not getting to the top of the profession in terms of consultancy. And actually, women do very well in medicine. Mm. You know, now when we look at things today, 50 percent of consultants in national maternity are female and um, 80 percent of trainees in obstetrics are female. So the picture has really changed. But we weren't seeing, for example, women getting into surgery. And um, so there's various areas of medicine where we weren't achieving. And then equally, you could see it in other careers because as master, I got exposed to the accountants, to the lawyers, yeah. and you could see that it was really difficult for women to get to the top of those professions, you know, particularly law. Um, and other areas with really clever women who were achieving brilliantly at university and then not really getting there. And and you reflect on that as to why some of it's choice. You know, you want to be at home, maybe minding mm. kids and you're going to have a family. And that's a really important and valid choice. So there's so many elements to it. It's not a simple thing. It's what we call a wicked problem. It's not a simple thing. But I remember going to Africa while I was master. I was very interested in third world medicine and I spent time in Sierra Leone, Malawi. Uh, South Africa, Tanzania um, and that was just such an eye opener because you saw such huge mortality and morbidity in young girls particularly because of teenage pregnancy. You know in Sierra Leone 40% of maternal mortality is girls who are um, under 16 um, and then you see how actually inequality really kills young girls and then you see in a much broader way what a significant problem this was and I suppose in time and I hope that as I go on through my career you know that there will be a chance to become an advocate because I think sometimes we forget all of this and we have our issues in Ireland for sure um, but when we look globally it's still a massive issue and you know I was at a big meeting in Nairobi last year with UNFPA and um, it was quite extraordinary just to see different countries in Africa approaching issues about equality and, and these often feed into peace and mm. stability and security so it's much more one of the things that really <clears throat> upsets me sometimes is that we seem to think of women's issues as kind of a silo you know women's things yeah, and they're kind yeah. of over there and we don't really want to know but actually sexual health reproductive rights they're really fundamental to stable society to peace to equality to how societies function and if you don't look after them um, you get an awful lot of uh, unnecessary difficult in society so there, it's really worth promoting that area and in, in terms of Ireland how many, mm. how many females percentage wise roughly mm. how many are surgeons yeah I think when we looked at 
train consultant surgeons probably about 10 to 20 percent and that's changing and I think we recognize this within the specialties and mm. we're looking at more flexible training programs and we need to do this and need to look at work practice as well so that we're not repelling people because the hours are so anti-family and anti-life yeah. and that's good for everyone actually it's good for men too because I think you know a lot of some of the specialties are really they have to be but they're very long hours and 24-7 and mm. cover etc they can't be any other way but we've got to look at I think ways of giving a little flexibility so that we can make these areas more attractive for trainees coming up. So you become master of the National Maternity Hospital and suddenly instead of, you know, child and mother health care, yeah, yeah. you, you become <coughs> CEO of just, because ma- it's a huge yeah, business, it was a one huge of the, operation. Yeah, at the time it was one of the busiest maternity hospitals in Europe. So we had, um, you know, between nine and 10,000 uh, deliveries um, every year, but including 11,000 care for 11,000 pregnant women every year. So, in European terms, we were absolutely up there. In fact, in global terms, you know, we had a very large um, hospital, a very busy hospital. We're also a tertiary referral hospital, so we are looking after complex cases from all over Ireland. And then we have a particular role within Ireland East as well, within that network. So, really busy, really complex. Um, and it's a really interesting business because, you know, if you look at it from a business perspective, and you do as a CEO or master, yeah. like you've got this open door so you can't schedule your birth you know women are going to give birth when they give birth so you have peaks and troughs that you can't predict you have complexity that you can't predict and obstetrics complications arise very suddenly you know really unpredictably suddenly you've got a postpartum hemorrhage you've got an eclamptic seizure you know things can happen very quickly and again it's a very surgical uh, specialty so it's all about procedure and wherever you have procedure you have a propensity to complications so it's a really interesting business to run it is 24 7 it's 365 days a year christmas day doesn't matter the babies will still come and you've got to be ready for everything so it's a very interesting job to run. The other thing is you've got very specialised staff, you're highly skilled staff, and you don't have a big pool of these staff. You can't just mm. go to market and yeah. say, I want five fully trained neonatologists. Or even at the moment, one of our biggest issues is theatre nurses. Um, they're really in short supply across the whole country. So, so you have this other problem that you've really skilled staff and a small pool, and yet you've got to keep this hospital mm-hmm. staffed and moving. So it presents quite a number of uh, challenges. Um, and then particular times of the year get very busy. So we have now, we're in our busiest time, unlike the acute hospitals, uh, we're having more babies than ever. And you have changeover of staff coming in July, our busiest month. So lots and lots of challenge. But... What you is all July is July yeah. the busiest month. July, August, September kind August, of would be it? our busy months, yeah. So whereas January, February would be our quietest months. Yeah. But like just to give you an idea, we could have forty babies in one day, or we might have twelve, you know. Mm. In general we'll have twenty five babies a day. But you could have one day where you have forty, forty two and it's all systems go. Yeah. So the staff are amazing and, and the only way it works is because you have this incredible flexible staff who just roll up the sleeves day in day out and just go with whatever is in front of you but you ended up though apart from having to run this massive business and the the politics of of mm. the new hospital etc and you're you're in your front and center of that and it's a long way from dealing with the basics that you went yeah, to study completely and i mean in many ways and i you know it's just 
talking earlier about we're setting I've set up a physician leader course with Trinity Business School to try and address the managerial element because while we did bits and pieces of leadership courses there is no real management training ingrained in the undergraduate curriculum in medicine um, or indeed later on in the postgraduate training and indeed the ongoing personal development that I think most CEOs would have in business we don't mm. see this in medicine yeah. and that's something I'd love to introduce because again it is running a business so the skill sets you need are all about strategy, negotiation, and of course, working with people, that collaboration, which is so important. And I think that's often missing in the Irish Health Service. You know, our hospital network grew up as a kind of accident of benevolence and fever um, and the English parliamentary system. That's how our hospital system got built. It wasn't a strategy that we put all our hospitals where we put them. So now we have this really fragmented hospital system and you're trying to get people working together across that network, across that system in a collaborative way. So, So they're all kind of real challenges. And then, you know, what I loved most, though, was I learned a lot from other kind of faculties. So I'd look at how the partners, you know, in KPMG or whatever, or, you know, Arthur Cox were running their business. I'd be looking at the architects, how they were running their business. I always wanted to know um, how it was. But to give you an example for me, like I reported to a board. So we're a voluntary hospital, so we have a board, which I think is great. And I think every hospital should have a board because it's checks and balances, it's strategic direction. And we have amazing people on our boards who have such skill set and they give this completely pro bono. Mm. You know, like the current chair of National Maternity Hospital, Nicholas Kearns, a previous president of the High Court. So you have all that skill set given mm. to you um, for nothing. Um, but then you would also report to the HSE. You'd also report to R&D's healthcare group. You'd also report to the National Women and Infants Health Programme. You're also reporting to the Department of Health. And then there's the clinical care programmes within the HSE. It's a mess. I mean, you know, and all of the, the, the roles are not clear um, so you have these layers of authority above the hospital. Some of them are authorised authority, some of them are unauthorised authority, but effectively trying to get a decision made is really difficult. Now that's pretty useful if you're looking for money because it means no one has to make that decision and it can go around the desk for ages. But in terms of efficient management, you know, and I think to be fair, Paul Reed, who's come in as head of HSE is doing a lot of work in terms of mm. that sort of strategy piece. But we have a massive amount of work to do in streamlining our management structures because otherwise your decision making is distorted and really compromised and it just makes everyone's life more difficult. Such a complex issue, isn't it? It leads us to your second yeah. musical choice, Ronan Mahoney. Code line, high hopes. It's almost like, <laughs> this <is> sarcastic. <laughs> uh, I'm having a bit of a laugh there, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I think on a serious note, I mean, it's, it's a quite a... My daughter said this is such a sad song, Mom, you can't pick this. And, and obviously the video that goes with it, you know, is someone who's about to commit suicide and then doesn't. And I was thinking J.K. Rowling, I used to always imagine, she used to say that um, rock bottom is a very solid foundation, you know. So on the bad days, you'd be sitting there going, God, how are we going to get out of this? Or how am I going to manage this? Or, you know, and then you realise that bit by bit you will. It's all about motivation and in high hopes of in the chorus it comes back all the time to back where we started from and I have so high hopes and I think that's the point your motivation you always have to come back why are you doing this what is this all about and that just nourishes you again so even you're always going to get the knocks you know no one is going to take and particularly not in Irish healthcare you're not going to walk in and wave a wand and everything's going to happen for you you've got to be ready for those knocks and have that resilience but I think if you have the motivation then you have the courage to do the things you need to do and to make those difficult decisions decisions and then you do have to have hope you know I mean it's a real essence of leadership is to either give people hope and to have hope because that's what keeps you going and 
I've managed somehow. I don't know. I've not lost it. I mean, I I still love working in Irish healthcare. It's really complicated still, but you, you know, and you do get things done. And then there's a real sense of achievement, and it is about impact and getting things done. And you know, I, you know, even one master, you had maybe built a new neonatal unit, and we built, we did a big internal refurbishment. You know, and you'd be walking through them every day, and you go, "God, that looks great," compared to how it used to look. And that's real, and it's tangible, and it's good. And I think as well, you know, the whole debate over the Eighth Amendment and to take part in that, you know what I mean? And to be able to advocate for patients, you know, and to see that change. These are really tangible, important things. And But you have to do the hard yards. There's no shortcuts in life. And that's number one. Here's Codaline and High Hopes. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's High Hopes from Codaline, the choice of today's guest, the former master of the National Maternity Hospital, Dr. Rona Manny, but the one thing I've discovered about you, because obviously I've read about you and heard your interviews down through the years and all the various battles that, that occurred <laughs> in the health system, but I couldn't believe your knowledge of Dublin GA pitches <laughs> <laughs> when I was chatting to you earlier. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I come from, and I have to say, not coming from me, but I come from a really football crazy house. So everyone in the house plays football. Except me, except I might play the odd time in the back garden. But all of them, so I have four children and four of them all play GAA. My youngest is more into the soccer probably than the GAA, but my two daughters play with Clontarf. Who have a very good team, yeah. They do. I have to say, Clontarf ladies team, or as a club for ladies, Clontarf is just phenomenal. You know, and a huge tribute to people like Kevin Hoy, who built up. They won the the All-Ireland. They won the All-Ireland last year, intermediate last year. So my daughter Sarah was on that team. That was a huge, the whole parish. It was a really Mm. lashing wet night in the 8th of December. I'll never forget, it was freezing. But everyone in the parish was there. And we were just delighted to watch the girls. We watched them for years. Just brilliant. And my daughter Lorna has a brilliant team as well. They have the most fun in Ireland, I think. Uh, It's a really good team. And then my son Dara and Sarah also won her first All-Ireland medal last year in Crow Park. So that was really exciting. And then my son Dara plays minor, played minor last year. So he's back playing with Clontarf now. But uh, we have a couple of injuries in the house at the moment. That's part of it. But it's been great for the family. It's been great for the, you know, for us all growing up as a family. I And the LGFA again, I mean, coming back to women, but I loved 2020, the campaign, you know, if you can't see her, you can't, you know, be, be her. her. Um, and that's such an important message to give to young girls, you know. Fairness, I do think, it, I, th- I think sport is, really changing in a very positive way. It really is. When you think that, you know, five years ago you would have had a brilliant game, usually Cork and Dublin in the ladies final and there'd have been 15,000 people Mm -hmm. there whatever. Now we're up to over 40,000, nearly 50,000. Over 50, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. you know, and that's just phenomenal. And you see also women's GA growing not just in Ireland but outside of Ireland. My daughter spent, uh, Lorna spent a year in Leon um, on a university course and they had a, Leon had a Gaelic team, you know, so Lorna was able to join up and meet everyone. So you see that that whole diaspora effect. I think I can't say enough good about GA as an organization. And what I really love is their grassroots approach. You know, it doesn't matter if you're like the top kid playing for Dublin. What actually matters is that in your club, you can rock around and have the fun, yeah. you know, play the game, get the exercise. And then for the parents, it's brilliant too. But they're a phenomenal organization, yeah. both LGFA and GA. Yeah. And, and as are the other sports as you refer to in the 2020. And your song, though, is a, is a soccer song. 
Mm. Well, so Liverpool, obviously, and yeah. of course Liverpool have just won the Premier League. So after 30 years, it's... Uh, it's yours so a Liverpool house. We are is. totally a Liverpool house. You have to touch <laughs> the This Is Anfield sign going down the stairs. Um, and there's various yeah. Liverpool paraphernalia everywhere. So as you can imagine, this year has just been pure. In fact, my kitchen is still festooned with Liverpool banners. They haven't come down yet. So that's been just the year in it. But... Also, I picked this song, uh, You'll Never Walk Alone. Um, it's obviously a tribute to my husband and my children. So my husband is probably the biggest GA and Liverpool fan in Ireland um, and is an encyclopedic knowledge of all of it. But also for my father, um, who loved Carousel, he loved musicals and Carousel was his favourite. And I suppose my father was my chief mentor. I had a very close relationship with my father. He died just over a year ago, but I really adored him. And we would talk every day, you know, and on Sundays I'd come in, I used to run out in Hoth, I'd still do on the cliff and I'd come in and we'd have the papers and I'd get a whole summary of all media events in the country and then we'd discuss them and then everything about the hospital, he'd be very excited and watching all the media the whole time. I'd get a report every night. He was a wonderful man, really was. So I miss him terribly. So it's nice to have that tribute to him. And then my poor mum's not well either. So equally for her, this song, I'll play a request for her to wish her well. She's got a few problems, um, but she is, as always, being very courageous and getting on with them brilliantly. So uh, we hope that the next few months will be good fun for her and we're doing all we can to, to make it a bit of fun. So I think this song is very much a family song. And of course, this song very much became the anthem after Hillsborough and it's hard not to be affected when you hear and think of those families. I mean, just the initial tragedy of Hillsborough, but all of the ugly, you know, politic that went mm-hmm. after it that exacerbated that grief so much. But so I think for me, this is such a song of solidarity of how people survive the worst times um, and the most awful grief, but people can. And I think in many ways, watching Liverpool win and hearing the fans sing, you see how people come back from the very worst things. So there's always hope um, and there's always future. Dr. Ronan Mahoney, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I wish we had more time. We don't, sadly. But it's a lovely way to play out. Jerry and the Pacemakers, you'll never walk alone. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.